exciting topic. Uh, this is one of those topics that's uh, almost sure to be caricatured. In fact, I got to watch one of my favorite movies uh, last week, which is Nacho Libre. I strongly encourage seeing that movie. And uh, his wrestle move is cangrejo de submisión. It's the crab hold of submission, okay? Um, <clears throat> it's funny because uh, the whole concepts of submission is something that's very foreign to us. Uh, it seems so ridiculous that it only fits in the context of WWF or, I guess, WWE now. Uh, maybe that's you this morning. You hear this topic, submission, and you think, you know, this is exactly the kind of joy-robbing I've come to expect from Christianity, right? Uh, or maybe you are a Christian this morning, and you've always found this topic hard to stomach, so you just kind of avoided it, right? Here's the thing, though. The scriptures do teach on submission. We can't avoid it. But I think that we'll find the Bible's teaching much more nuanced, honest, and life-giving than pretending it doesn't have anything to do with us. In fact, it actually addresses the world we live in, the real world. The Bible says we're actually, actually supposed to submit in a number of relationships. Sorry, I can't see your face here, Rob. I'm going to scoot this back for you, brother. Um, it says that, uh, we are, that wives are to submit and honor husbands, just as husbands are to serve and cherish their wives. It says that children are to submit to parents, and of course parents are to nurture and encourage their children and not provoke them. Church members are to submit to their elders, just as elders are to submit to each other and care for the church members. Employees are to submit to their bosses, and the subjects of a nation or a kingdom are to submit or be subject to the governmental authorities. In fact, Ephesians 5.21 says that all Christians should, should submit to one another. It's a Christian virtue. So what do we do with that? In fact, the Bible says that not only ought we to submit in these, but we are both in positions of submission and authority. Submission and leadership. So as a husband, I'm called to lead my wife and kids, but I'm also called to submit to my church leaders, to my government, to my boss, and so on. But here's the question. What does submission really mean? What's it actually look like in the brass tacks? Uh, in the religious world, uh, submission is a topic and a thing that's used in very different ways. And the same word, different meanings. Uh, in fact, if you, you might already know this, but the word Islam means submission. To be a Muslim is to be one who is submitted to God's laws. But what they mean is very different from what Jesus means. In fact, what they mean is much closer to inferiority, having no will or opinion of your own, killing your own desire to make sure and please and be pleasing to everyone. That is not the kind of submission that Jesus has in mind. It's very different. But even for Christians, we have a fair degree of confusion about the word. Some churches teach that all women should submit to all men. Let me just tell you right now, that's wrong. It's plain wrong. And I'd be happy to walk you through the passages where we not only see the opposite, okay, women exerting leadership in the nation of Israel, but also uh, we need to be careful because uh, this is clearly not supported in Scripture. Some, however, limit submission to the marital relationship, which the Bible does do, but the, the way they describe submission that's expected of wives, is virtually synonymous with doormat. Others try to wiggle out of the real challenge the word brings, right? We don't like the word, so we're going to try and find a way for it not to mean what it means. 
I'm probably guilty of both of those tendencies, right? I think all of us are probably guilty of both those tendencies. We don't quite know what to do with this. So let me just say this. All this confusion makes this passage very important for us uh, because we have before us a description of Jesus' submission to the Father. This is not a command to submit, but a display of submission. So let me read the text, and then we'll pray and jump in. Starting in verse 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, that is Jesus, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, or nothing from himself, nothing of his own initiative, according to his own agenda, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father. Whoever does, uh, does not honor the Father who sent them. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. And those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own, or I can do nothing from myself. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are our greatly exalted king, and yet you are a humble king, displaying the Father's and the Spirit's own humility. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would teach us. I know my own uh, fear with this topic. I know many of us here in this room. Lord, we pray that you would instruct us and you would give us hope that we would find greater joy as we come to obey and follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me suggest a simple working definition for submission. Uh, Entrusting and aligning your will to your leader's will. Entrusting and aligning your will to your leader's will. I did not say giving up your will or giving up your ability to have opinions, or the destruction of your will. In fact, what I'm saying is just what Jesus says, I don't seek my own will, he does have one, but the will of him who sent me. Or in verses 19 and 30, nothing of my own accord, nothing from myself, not according to my own agenda, I'm not pushing for my own interests. 
Jesus' submission to the Father is the model and basis for all Christian submission. The question I want to ask this morning, though, is how can Jesus, who is fully and equally God, submit to the Father? How is that right? How is that not also a stab to his dignity? And I'm hoping in answering that question we'll get some clarity, though I'm guessing we'll also get some new questions, too. So let me just say a handful of things to get the ground clear first. First, we have people in this church all across the spectrum from various backgrounds and uh, traditions, as well as in very different situations in their marriages, in their workplace, as well as their experience of submission. So let me just say this. I'm not going to be able to say enough about this topic to apply to each one of you. I will do my best. But let me just say this. Please, please come and talk to me so we can explore what this means. It would be an honor for me to sit down with you and think about how this actually looks in your own life. Okay, second, this topic is as much for men as it is for women. But I am also speaking as a man, and I'm a leader in many contexts. So uh, if that makes you suspicious of me, okay. Uh, I can't convince you otherwise. But I will say this. Most of the burden I feel with this passage is probably more personal. I'm thinking about what this means for my leadership. I'm thinking about what kind of leadership cultivates this kind of submission. So uh, I will not say that there's nothing else to do with this passage, but that's my burden. Third, within marriage, I'll simply say that as I studied this, I was greatly convicted of, uh, of my own lack of true leadership and care for my wife. And you are more than welcome to come and ask me and my wife of how I've failed, uh, how we've learned together, uh, and what this has looked like in our marriage. We are an open book, and we would welcome that with any of you. Uh, in fact, it's safe to assume that for most of us, we have no idea what we're doing. That's generally a safe assumption in most of life. We're all oblivious and trying to figure it out. So we can be very gracious with each other as we learn together. Last thing I'll just say, <clears throat> in order to get to the good stuff, we have to start with a heady and intellectual place. But I just promise you, it will pay off. So stick with me, do the hard work, and we'll land somewhere real lovely. I, I promise. So three points this morning, uh, the first two being the longest. Jesus' submission is free. It's free. Jesus' submission is an act of trust. And then finally, Jesus' submission is glorious. It's glorious. So first, Jesus' submission is free. And we see this first in his equality. Look at this uh, in verse 18. We have to understand who Jesus is if we're going to understand what it means for him to submit. Verse 18, he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Well, let's think about what that means for just a second, to be equal with God. It means that as the eternal son of God, the one who existed in perfect love with the Father and the Spirit before all eternity, in his divine nature he has the same substance, the same glory, the same power, All the same divine attributes and rights as God the Father. So whatever we can say about God, we can say about each of the persons. If God is free to do as he pleases, what does that mean about the Son? The Son is free to do as he pleases. And likewise, the Spirit is free to do as he pleases. We know that the Son is eternally begotten from the Father, that he came from the Father, but this is kind of where we start getting into trouble. 
Because for most of us, we imagine that because the Son is from the Father, that He proceeds from the Father, we think that He's lesser. But God the Son is not less God because He is from the Father. And the Father is not greater God because He is not from anyone. In fact, to be from someone is not to be less than someone. And I'll do a clear example. Our children. My children have equal rights as I do, albeit them coming from my wife and I's bodies. So the Son is just as much God as the Father. We need to think of each of the persons as being entirely equal. The Holy Spirit and the Son do not have a lesser role in forming God's will. They don't have a JV version of divinity. Okay, they're not studying up so they can graduate to fatherhood. No, they are fully, fully divine. Make all of their willing rights and power equal with the Father. So when Jesus says that he can't do anything on his own, it does not mean that he is less powerful than the Father. When he says, I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me, he isn't saying that his will is less important or that he's sorry that he has a will. Rather, Jesus' submission is the voluntary and free aligning of his will, his human will, to the Father's. He is not less, but has chosen, has chosen to take on the lower role. He took on flesh. His fleshliness is him taking on the lower role. Now here's the problem for most of us. We usually assume that if you are in a higher position of authority you have greater value. And so if you're in a lower position of authority, you have lesser value. And this is typically why we ignore what our children say or what people beneath us say. But we can't draw an equal sign between authority and value or significance or even power. We see that in Jesus, he is entirely equal with the Father, and yet, what does Philippians 2 say? He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. So as Jesus takes on our humanity, he makes himself lower. He submits himself to the Father. And the stunning thing is that he submits himself as an equal. He is not compelled to do so. He's not manipulated. The Father doesn't say, hey, Jesus, don't get dramatic and emotional about the whole thing, okay? Are you with me or ain't you? Jesus submits himself willingly, in love, as equal. So let me just say this. One big implication for us is that true submission is something that can only happen between two equals. It can only happen between two equals. We can also see the freedom of Jesus' submission in his authority and activity. Jesus' mission is displayed in his authority and activity. Look at verse 21 and 23. This is wild. <clears throat> he says, first off, I can't do anything on my own. And then he says, verse 21, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Verse 26 and 27, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Do you hear all the language 
of the free and active use of authority. Free and active use of authority. Jesus has submitted himself to the Father, and yet he has received authority. He gave up all of his rights with equality with God, and yet he's been given back all of those rights to accomplish the Father's will. He gives life to whom he will. Let's talk about free authority. All judgment is entrusted to the Son. He doesn't make recommendations to the Father. He doesn't say, Father, I think this guy goes this way. No, he executes the judgment. He decides. He pulls off. He's the one who says yes or no. Jesus' authority is given to him by the Father, but Jesus isn't timid in using it for that reason. He is all the more active and free in his authority because it was granted to him in his submission. The Father, it turns out, is not a micromanager. Okay? One big implication here is that true leadership, true leadership seeks out the skills, the talents, the gifts that people are given and gives them the authority to get stuff done and to make decisions. Gives them authority. The Father has given all judgment to the Son so that the Father doesn't even render decisions about judgment. The submission, submission does not mean you can have no authority, but rather that you refuse to grasp for authority. Do you see the difference there? So you can be given great authority and free use of that authority as it serves the common goal and vision. Now, what's this mean? My role at Christ Church is kind of like, uh, I like to tell people, I'm in a wifely role. Uh, You might think of me as a leader. Yes, I am. But in fact, that doesn't mean that I don't submit. Part of my job is to plan and coordinate and kind of think through what happens on Sundays, the liturgy and the songs and this and that and Pretty much everything is technically mine, um, though clearly Karen does most of the important stuff here. Um, But the reality is, is that I have a boss. In fact, I have seven bosses. The session. And I have one boss who oversees me, Nate. But not only do I submit to them regularly and listen to them, if they tell me to do something, I'll do it. But because they're good leaders, they also make sure to hear my voice and to honor the authority that they've granted to me. Now, in our home, one way this has looked has been with the education of our kids. I have the authority in my home to veto or pursue different types of schooling, and my wife is happy to submit to me in that. But it's my wife who directs our kids' education. And I don't mean that she manages the logistics. She purchases the napkins and the goldfish. No. No, she is the one whose voice, whose studies, whose reading, whose vision for the mode and method of, our, method of our kids' schooling has shaped our kids' schooling. And I'd be a fool if I didn't entrust to her the authority to craft a vision and make decisions for their education because she is gifted and passionate about it. Because I have not done the work. I'm not equipped. So I need her to teach me and help me to make better decisions. So, the obvious question here is for those of us who are in any kind of leadership. Have we explored the callings, the gifts, the talents of those over whom we have authority? Have we commissioned and authorized them and given them freedom? This is just as true uh, for someone leading a team at work as it is for a husband. Or, have we slipped into thinking that their submission makes their voice, their insight, and their value less significant. 
It's an easy move. For those of us in a place which calls us to submit, we need to know this. If Jesus did not submit because he was lesser, you are not lesser either. Rather, you are in good company with the great and glorious servant. And the first will be last, and the last will be first. So, Jesus freely and voluntarily submits as an equal, but what enables him to do this? Trust. And this is our second point. Jesus' submission is an act of trust. <clears throat> Look at verses 19 and 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. Trust forms the mission. Trust forms the mission that the Father, Son, and Spirit have willed. The description of the relationship between the Father and Son is so warm in this passage. Do you get any sense of begrudging from the Son? Of course not. Because the Father loves the Son. The Son is delighted in by the Father. And so the Father would never keep the Son at arm's length. The Father would never keep the Son from seeing what he is doing. The Father doesn't have a separate bank account from the Son. This relationship between Father and Son is one of great vulnerability and trust. The Son loves to submit to the Father, to mimic the Father, because of the Father's love to the Son. So when it comes time to submit, He can do so willingly because He trusts the Father. Now listen, in that trust, we need to see that Jesus is active and actually shaping the mission that he's been sent on. The son does not submit to a plan which he had no role in forming. The son had an equal role with the Father and the Spirit in eternity past in forming this plan, this vision, this mission to save humanity. So the son willed with the Father and the Spirit to save humanity, and then he turned around and submitted to that. That's the picture. That's how profound his submission is, that he not only forms the mission, but then submits himself to it. The Son knows and is known by the Father, and so he can unite himself to this agreed mission. But also trust enables the Son to engage in the mission. Jesus' submission, it turns out, does not make him passive. He doesn't just show up and say, all right, God, do it. You said you want to do the thing. I'm here. Pull it off, man. So for us, we have to see that when we're called to submit, we are not called to be passive or disengaged. Submission is not saying, oh, who wants to hear from me? I'm just a woman. Or, what good can I contribute to the church? I'm not an official leader. This may feel like really humble submission for a little while. But eventually that low, boiling resentment for being overlooked and ignores will keep growing. And it starts creeping out in comments and feelings. That's because when I'm passive, I expect the leader to do everything on their own and to give it to me on a silver platter. I expect them to have figured out me and my needs from a distance, having never voiced anything. But if I'm active, I become invested and begin to take responsibility for our project. 
So let me just say this, finally. Trust accepts the will of God behind the leader. And this is probably the most important one in this section. True submission looks like the prayer Jesus uttered moments before his crucifixion. Moments before his submission to his father resulted in his betrayal, arrest, and violent death. He says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Luke 22. It takes trust for Jesus to speak his desire to the Father. Remove this cup from me. I don't want it. It takes trust for him to speak that. But it also takes trust to say, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus trusts that the Father's will is good. But we haven't said enough. This trust Jesus has is all the more profound since he knew full well what it would involve. This submission, this trust, is not grown out of ignorance. That's not submission, that's slavery. Jesus knows exactly what it will cost him. And yet he still makes his desires known and leaves it in the Father's hands to decide. It takes a tremendous amount of trust to speak to be heard and not to speak to get your way or get that leader to come to your side. I'll just tell you, this has been an extremely effective tool in our marriage. (laughs) When my wife has spoken to me to be heard and I realize that, wow, it's humbling. So I said that we're supposed to accept the will of God behind the leader. Here's the thing. We are often called to submit to foolish people. Sometimes even people who do evil things to us. Numerous places in the New Testament tell us to submit to governmental authorities and to obey them. We have to remember that the rulers in the New Testament era were not nice people. They would not be able to be elected in the United States. In fact, many were emperors were quite self-absorbed, foolish, and evil persecutors of Christians. Nero, okay, AD 60 or so, right around the time when a lot of the New Testament letters are written and Gospels are being written, he, there's a fire that happens in Rome, and you know what he wants to do? He wants to find a scapegoat for the fire, someone to blame. So he picks the Christians. And he takes their bodies, and he dips them in tar, and he lights them on fire to light up the gardens for one of his parties. This is a cruel and foul man. And yet, Jesus submits to men like this. Paul says, submit to these authorities. So submitting to rulers often means going along with their will, even if it's stupid and foolish, yes, even suffering because of it. But submission does not mean disobeying God. It will never mean disobeying God. Because here's the thing, while Christians were subjected to serious suffering in the early church, it was often because they resisted They resisted the commands of the government that would have made them disobey. They did not recant their faith in Christ. They didn't give over the scriptures. They didn't join the army. So what does this mean for us? Well, we're not holy like the Father, right? But we better believe that we're supposed to imitate his leadership. Better believe it. So let me just say this briefly. If you find that your wife or your kids or your employees struggle to submit to you, it's entirely likely that they don't trust you. And that could be for a number of reasons. It could be that you've kept them out of the plan and vision crafting process. Maybe your track record is one of being someone who doesn't listen 
so it's hard for them to think it's even worth trying? That's been true of me, I promise you. Or maybe it's that you don't know them. You don't know their needs and their weaknesses. Maybe they don't know you. They don't know what motivates you. They don't know how you've thought about them or what hopes for you have for them. So if you're a leader, a husband, a church leader, boss, politician, a leader in any case, especially mothers, you are a leader of such children, are you ready to risk being known so well and so intimately that others might be able to call you on your mistakes? There is risk here, yes. The risk of our ego. But we also have tremendous hope of gaining trusting submission, which is true submission. But the question actually gets harder if you're on the other side of the equation. What if you are in the place of submission, whether as wife, employee, whatever? Well, first, our submission to lesser authorities is part of our submission to God, our ultimate submission to God. So we have to ask if submitting to this person will mean that I have to do evil or be responsible for carrying out evil. good example of this would be if you are a soldier in Germany during the Nazi reign. You ought not to do evil things. You ought to disobey your leaders. But I think the challenge for most of us is usually not like that. The challenge is usually that we see the leader's decision as dumb. And we anticipate it making our lives miserable. Let me just tell you, during seminary, I had a really good idea. I was going to start a taco truck with my buddies. Love tacos. There was no food trucks in St. Louis. It was the perfect time. We were crafting our menu. My buddy had a bunch of money. He could invest in it. And my wife reminded me, you're a student in seminary. (laughs) This is your job. I don't think this is a good idea. I see why you're trying to do this, but please, honey. It was a dumb decision on my part. Thankfully, I listened to her. Let me just say, we are never called to carry out evil, to disobey God. But we do suffer and endure evil. We do suffer and endure evil. A life of enduring folly and evil is not a waste. It's not a waste. But it is a grievous injustice. And the Lord is the avenger of his children. We are not the avenger, but the Lord sees and will avenge every evil done to his children. So you can trust him even with your suffering, just as Jesus did. But let me say this. Part of the Lord's protection of his children is that he's put leaders in place. So if you are in a place in your home where evil is being done to you, please come and talk to me or Jesse Clausen or my wife or Diana Lim or one of the elders. It is our job to protect this flock. We will take you seriously. We will listen to you. We will help you navigate what this means. I am not asking you to go on being abused or hurt. I am asking you to come and seek our help. So this leads us to our last point. Submission most of the time involves some degree of suffering and injustice because there's sin in the world. It's true for the early church. It's true for Jesus who knew the Father's plan and submitted. But here's the question. How can Jesus trust that the Father's will is good? It's because the Father is motivated by sharing his glory with the Son. The Father could not tolerate a vision of history and redemption which did not make the Son a full participant, the crowning piece of his glory. So, Jesus' submission is glorious. First off, it's the doorway to his glory. Look at verse 18 with me. 
Jesus is the judge of all the earth. But what does verse 18 say? This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Jesus, seeking the Father's will, means that he will be crucified. That's what it means. As the judge of all the earth, the true and just judge, Jesus is arrested, falsely accused, unjustly tried, wrongly convicted, and violently executed on the cross. He submits to the Father, and it brings about suffering. Now, the glorious thing is that he stands as true judge, vindicated in his resurrection, now able to offer pardon for sin because he himself has suffered for our sin. The judge can condemn justly because he knows what true justice is. He himself has been unjustly judged. The judge can acquit and pardon because he has made payment for our sin. But Jesus' submission to death is not only what equips him, it also accomplishes our life, our forgiveness. It accomplished the Father's mission. It matured and equipped him to be the judge. Now listen, the Son is qualified to be the judge from all eternity, right? He's God. He knows. And yet through his submission to the Father, even to the cross, he learns and is matured and thus earns the right to judge all His death becomes his glory. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. Revelation 5. The Father's plan is not simply for Jesus to be matured through his suffering, but to give Jesus glory. To give Jesus glory. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. The Father has not only accomplished our salvation by Jesus' submission, but made Jesus the focus of all glory. Look at verse 22 and 24. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. One big implication here is that asking for submission from someone without also seeking that person's glory is not leadership. It's an arrogant form of exploitation. Asking for submission without pursuing that person's glory is a form of exploitation. And I have been guilty of this for years in my marriage. So if you're in a position of leadership, let me invite you to repent with me today. If this is what Jesus has accomplished in Jesus' submission, is he planning on doing nothing with your submission? No. No. This is Romans 8. If we are children, then heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. We have no idea 
how God will exalt you and give you a taste of his glory, but we know that is exactly what he plans to do. A life of enduring suffering is not a waste. It is a life chocked full of material God will use to exalt you when Christ returns. Even, in fact, before then, oftenly. This is Romans 8 again. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only creation, but we ourselves, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we eagerly await the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. I've learned so much from my wife. One thing I've learned is how to appreciate how much birth exemplifies this. Uh, there's so much weakness, hunger, sleeplessness, and work in the first months of pregnancy, just growing the baby. You don't sleep. That's before the baby is born. Not to mention the birth process itself, agony, hard work, suffering that overwhelms you. Even if you're lucky enough to get an epidural, you're still in it for the first hours of laboring and contracting, not to mention the recovery time. The first nine months after the baby is born, you don't even feel like you are yourself. In fact, every waking minute, every square inch of your body is dedicated to helping someone else's life go well. Right? So when we talk about submission, child rearing is submission, but it is so tremendously fruitful and important that it shapes the world. The humanity exists because of this submission. And it is through this very act that God decided to send his own son for the life of the world. Consider this. If Mary did not submit to the suffering of childbirth or to the demands of mothering, where would we be? Think about the amount of authority and trust God gives to Mary. Indeed, in our own families, through much pain and sometimes tragedy, God brings new life, new souls, and a new maturity and glory to us through this act and lifelong suffering. Romans 8 again. We know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Not only creation, but we ourselves. And yet, what happens? At the end of childbirth, new souls are made. And so in our suffering, we wait for the new creation that God is bringing about. God intends to use our submission to him, whether to cruel bosses, idiotic government, or whatever it may be, to bring blessing and life into the world and to give us a full share and a stake in his glory. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, it's overwhelming to think that you were not content to simply save us, but you made us heirs of your glory. What a gift. Lord, give us trust in your care for us. Help us to see that you are motivated by our glory, our good. Lord, let us bathe in your kindness to us so that we could be useful in our own leadership and submission. Give us your spirit, Lord, with these hard things so that we could have joy as well. In Jesus' name, amen.